You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Conwade, and my guest today is Katie Herzog. Uh, Katie, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, um, my name, as you said, is Katie Herzog. I'm a staff writer at The Stranger, which is Seattle's premier and only alt bi weekly. Um, and I would like to say that despite what I'm going to say today, I am a progressive, self identified progressive. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, that was actually something that was kind of a preparatory question I thought of asking you. Um, so I should say that the, uh, we're going to be talking about some topics that are controversial and like, especially controversial online. And, um, the first of these topics is, uh, Jordan B. Peterson, uh, mm-hmm. who probably everyone knows who he is at this point. Um, I wanted to talk to you about this because you wrote two pieces about Peterson in the past couple weeks. Um, you went to see his, uh, road show kind of thing that he's doing or his, his public appearance, um, uh, when I was in Seattle. And then you also wrote a piece, uh, kind of defending Peterson from some of the criticism he's getting from people, uh, on the left side of the spectrum. Um, I also wanted to do this conversation because, uh, the, I've gotten a lot of negative feedback from commenters and tweeters and YouTube commenters and other assorted internet people whenever, uh, I've had an episode that mentioned Jordan Peterson in the past. And it's actually in the, like, I, th- I started doing this podcast in t- at the beginning, uh, at the start of 2015, and no other topic that I can remember has spurred such a impassioned backlash as criticizing mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson online, um, you know, and doing, like, 50 to 100 of these episodes. Um, so I wanted to bring someone on who was a little more sympathetic to Jordan Peterson. Um, you're clearly not a Jordan Peterson super fan. But you've staked yeah. out a position um, defending him, and you've uh, thought about him seriously. So, yeah, yeah. So, well, well, do you want to start by talking about what it was like seeing him in person? Yeah, I've actually seen him twice. I saw him uh, in his appearance in Seattle. So he's on this, you know, like you said, a road show, and he he comes in at the Seattle event. He really talked about sort of. What was it about? It was about religion, essentially. And so it was, it's like his self-help book. His, uh, is, you know, what's his book called? 12 Rules to like being a grown-up man, boy, or something like that. 12 Rules um, for Life or 12 Rules for Living. Yeah. It's one of those two. Yeah. Something of those. And then so I also, a couple weeks after that, or maybe the same week, I went to Vancouver and I saw him debate Sam Harris about the utility of religion. So it would maybe sound that I've like actually traveled to see this man would actually maybe make it sound like I'm a Jordan Peterson fan. I'm not, but I'm interested in the phenomenon. And one thing I noticed, like everybody else, I've mostly read the like the terrible profiles of Peterson, and I haven't watched many of his videos. I I find him like pretty boring. Um, I don't. He like his his he speaks in like one giant metaphor, and he's really into these sort of archetypes and this and this idea that like humanity is all based on this ongoing story and that's the most important thing is like looking at this these these stories and like taking meaning from these stories which i don't like that doesn't help me at all as a human being and i i just like don't find it very interesting um but i'm interested in the phenomenon and in seattle what i found was that the, the like one thing that you always hear about peterson is that he appeals to to like young white disgruntled males, like incels, you know, like this sort of 
the dude who the failure the guy who who suffers from the failure to launch he's like stuck in his mom's basement can't get a girlfriend can't get a job and that was not my experience of going to his live show and maybe you know the live shows are expensive i'm sure it's a self-selecting audience that said his audience was incredibly diverse like and and i said this in the review that i wrote i normally the events that i go to are sort of like um i go to a lot of public radio type events like the last event that I saw before Peterson was Michael Pollan talking about, he was on tour in Seattle talking about his new book about psychedelics. And that looked like a KKK rally compared to Jordan Peterson's audience <laughs> with the exception of the fact that there was a lot of Jews there. Um, it, like there were men, there were women, there were people of color. It wasn't just like white men and their Asian girlfriends. There were, it was like a very, very diverse <laughs> audience, which was surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so, and that like, and I think that's important because people who haven't been to these events are getting the mistaken idea. And Seattle is not a hugely diverse city. So like, so I don't think that this, like, this wasn't like typical of Seattle. This was typical of Peterson. And the same thing was true to some extent when I saw him in Vancouver as well um, with Sam Harris. And I think that's important because it shows you that all of these sort of think pieces we're, get about Peter, uh, we're getting about Peterson's audience is incorrect. Um, and so when I've written about Peterson, and I've been dismissive of him as well, like he's extremely easy to make fun of because he's a, like he's kind of a dork. He's really thin skinned. He takes himself super seriously. He's so easy to make fun of. I enjoy making fun of him on Twitter. I think it has to do with yeah. his, um, you know, he's not, uh, he's not ironic at all. Like his. No, no. And he is like in person, he is. And so I met him afterwards. I went to the live show that I went to in Seattle. I went in the company of Brett Weinstein, who is the beleaguered former Evergreen professor, who's sort of one of these like intellectual dark web leaders. Yeah, he's, he's appeared a couple times on um, our websites. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I went with Brett, which was especially fun because Brett is a celebrity among this crowd. Um, and so it was fun to me to like be by a celebrity. I mean, people were asking for his autograph. We went and got drinks afterwards and some, you know, the, the server came up and was like, all of your drinks have been taken care of by this other person in the, who saw us in the thing. Um, and, and the, and Brett's fans were also very diverse. And, you know, Brett is someone who has been accused of white supremacy and racism and all of that. And so I think that to me, it was like very sort of eye opening to see like, okay, this, these people are not just speaking to young white men. That's just, it's, that's a falsehood. Um, and that, so that's sort of why I'm interested in this from, from a, a, a perspective as a media critic. I think that a lot of what has been said about Peterson is just, is not based in reality. It's based on this caricature of who he is because he's really easy to characterize, characterize, whatever, whatever word that mm-hmm. is. <laughs> yeah. So that said, like, I find a lot of what he says, like, pretty boring and I don't understand why he, I, I don't understand why he is appealing to people. Like he's not, he's not a very compelling speaker. He paces back and forth on the stage. He barely looks at the audience at all. Like it's just like 70 minutes stream of consciousness. And it, and like, it doesn't sound incredibly thought out, but for whatever reason, this like philosopher figure is really appealing to young people and old people. And he's, and like, there were apparently 8,000 people at their, at their recent show in Dublin or London or somewhere. So I find it interesting that like, any sort of philosopher can bring out people who are willing to spend 50 bucks to go to a live show and listen to them blather for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And what was, what would you say was the gender breakdown of the audience? Uh, I would say 60, 40 male, female. Okay. I don't know. Actually that was the sex breakdown. I don't know how many genders were there. We can discuss that 
question in the second part of our conversation, perhaps. So that might be too too much. I mean, you know, there's there's an infinite number of genders. So really, there was probably like three thousand people at the show in Vancouver. So there are probably three thousand genders. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. Um, so yeah, so the, so Peterson is definitely interesting as a phenomenon. Like he's clearly popular. He has a best selling book. He's you know who's the last. Uh, self, you know, who's the last college professor who went on a road show and was filling, um, auditoriums? I can't, I, I don't even know. Like, no, no, no one in the no, past 50 no, years no. is coming to no. mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. the pro- Clarence Darrow, maybe. <laughs> right. Um, the, you sent me a profile by Wesley Yang, uh, that mm-hmm. we'll link to. That was an Esquire. That's a very, uh, positive profile of, uh, of Peterson. And he makes the point that, uh, Peterson's uh, thoughts may now be the like most disseminated thoughts of any like uh, I don't know if he said academic or professor or thinker like in human history because of all the YouTube you know the millions of YouTube views that he that he gets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's you know that's that's an interesting claim uh, so at the same time I've I haven't delved deeply into the oeuvre uh, but I've read some of the negative articles and uh we can link to some of the those i think the most devastating is the nathan robinson one in current affairs mm-hmm. uh where robinson read uh both of peterson's books including his uh kind of magnum opus uh i think it's called maps of meaning yeah um, and basically came away thinking it was total nonsense and yeah. has some quotes and some like diagrams from the book that you know, look like something I, that someone on the street corner would hand you in a pamphlet and you would throw I away. Think there, I think there's some, like, some validity to that criticism. Um, it, like, a lot of what he says, and I wrote this in my first review of him, is, like, really basic psychological concepts sort of wrapped up in this, in his, like, flowery, like, metaphor-laden speech. Like, at the, at his show in Seattle, he went on sort of this long tangent about, about, the need to make decisions. And I think that's, I think that he's actually onto something here because a lot of, and I think especially for his audience, if you're, if you assume that his audience sort of skews young and people making sort of life decisions, there is sort of this paralysis, you know, what do I want to do with, with my job? What kind of partner do I want to have? Like we have in like this affluent privileged society, we have so many options that oftentimes there is this sort of paralysis. You just can't make a decision because there are too many options. And that's a really basic psychological concept called the paradox of choice. Peterson didn't come up with it, but he didn't say that like, oh, when I, like this is a psych 101 like lesson that I'm teaching you. But he just cloaks it in sort of like this like sprung from my he uses this this the like very typical uh, metaphor is like you're in a grocery store and there are 500 bottles of shampoo and studies have shown that you're less likely to be satisfied with your choice when you have more choices versus a limited number of choices. Right. And so like this is Peterson a standard experiment you learn about totally psych 101. Stand- totally standard. Peterson didn't, you know, didn't like explain that. It's sort of, so it's sort of, I wouldn't say he took credit for it, but he didn't credit anybody else. Um, and I'm forgetting who came up with this also. So I'm also not going to credit him. Um, but and I think there's also a lot of value there and this isn't, and so he was sort of talking about it in terms of mate choices. And I think that if you, uh, a bad faith interpretation of that would be, Peterson saying, like, I could see a critic hearing that and saying, okay, Peterson is talking about what men need to do is like, he's, he's talking about women like their, like their bottles of, of shampoo in the grocery store. Like, I can, I can see a media critic saying that, or a Peterson critic saying that. Uh-huh. However, that's like, that isn't something that is just, is, is, 
it like just applies to straight men like shopping for for wives or whatever. Like I have a I have a colleague who it was Pride in Seattle a couple weeks ago. And I was asking him what he was going to do for Pride. And he was like, Pride is the worst weekend of the year to get laid because every other day of the year, he's on, on all the apps, right? So any other day of the year, any other week in the year, he just like gets on apps, orders some sex, whatever, gets delivered to his house like pizza. But on Pride weekend, there's so many people that you're always looking for the better option. So you're not getting laid <laughs> because there's, there could be somebody else better coming along. And I think, and I think that's sort of what Peterson is talking about. And he probably doesn't even know what Grinder is. He seems very heterosexual. But my point is, like, this isn't some, I can see how, how someone would take this as sort of like, just like have a negative reading of that when really what it is, is just this, this, like this idea that human beings need to make choices, which I agree with. Like we do need to make choices. And once you make a choice, you're generally happier than, than being left in the limbo of the, the, the choosing stage. Okay. So a couple interesting things there. Um, one is, you know, you have to choose. That's kind of a banality. Like, and, and one of the accusations against Peterson is these peddling nostrums, you know, that don't, yeah. you know, like clean your room is not yeah. uh, rocket science. So, you know, everyone has to choose their, uh, Shakespeare's most famous play. Hamlet is about someone who's, is unable to choose and everyone dies in the end. So th- this is like a well-established concept in our society that, uh, right. one needs to make choices. Um, right. that experiment in particular, um, as I recall, it was originally done with like a jelly and, mm-hmm. you know, there were like six jellies versus like 25 jellies or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so people who had to choose, who chose from the 25 jelly were less satisfied than with their eventual j- jelly choice than people who, only got to choose out of six. So mm-hmm. it's very easy to read this study as a critique of capitalism. Why do we mm-hmm. need 25 jellies? This, mm-hmm. is, this is a waste. We have way too many jellies. We have way too many mm-hmm. shampoos. They're all essentially the same. you know. <laughs> but the logic of capitalism is that everyone's trying to make the best jelly, even mm-hmm. though all jellies you know, come within a, some sort of range, more or less the same. And if there are only uh, five brands of jelly, and, then you'd be happier with your jelly. Um, but we're stuck in the system that has 25 brands of jelly. So that mm-hmm. makes more sense to me than going to mate choice with, mm-hmm. with, with this. Like that logical jump doesn't make that much sense to me when there's, I'm sure, 500,000 studies about mate choice um, specifically and not about jellies. <laughs> and certain factors weigh in with mate choice that don't weigh in with jellies because mm-hmm. people are more different than jellies. Uh, <laughs> so Maybe the people you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, when you're on, when you're on Grindr and you're just going through, it really is like choosing a jelly. Um, so. And, and you need jelly, actually, when you're doing that. <laughs> a lot of it. Right. That, yeah, that jelly is in a separate part of the supermarket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so the, this, so, uh, uh, some, uh, Bill Black, who is a, uh, writer and historian who appears on Blogging Is a Meaning of Life TV, sometimes sent me a, um, TEDx talk that Peterson did about 10 years ago, so before he became, attained wide, you know, widespread fame and TEDx, as people don't know, like, basically, you just need to sign up and you can give a talk. Right. They're shorter, they're like 10 or 12 minutes or something. Um, so it was, you know, TEDx Toronto or whatever, and he's, and he gives a talk, and so I watched it, and parts of it, um, and I haven't really watched his, his, his other videos, I mean, so parts of it, he's, he's doing a kind of metaphoric spiel, and then he gets to something where, so, like, someone once asked him if you could tell every human being in the world one thing, what would you tell him? And then he goes into, like, this separate part that really I found incomprehensible. And he has slides, like a PowerPoint slide, 
and it's like images from art history and diagrams and stuff. And he's talking about order and chaos, which is his, his like big overarching metaphor for right. his existence or whatever. And yeah, I, like I, <laughs> as I said previously, if someone, a disheveled person on a street corner was giving this monologue, you would just kind of avoid him and then keep on walking. Um, right. So it's, I'm a mere mortal. Uh, it's possible I don't understand the deep metaphoric significance of Dr. Peterson's, uh, order and chaos monologue that he wants to tell to every human alive or it's possible that this is just a load of bunkum and i mean it can also be both though i mean people are like clear like i i I agree with you i mean a lot of it strikes me as pure bullshit um this like female feminine is chaos masculine is order it strikes me as just it's a metaphor it's bullshit but people and i don't think like i was sitting in the audience at his show and i was like am I dumber than the people in this, this audience? Cause I'm kind of bored and I'm also not kind of getting it. And that's possible, but it's also possible that they're like, that they're taking meaning from it, that they're, they're they want to take meaning from it. So they're taking meaning from it. And I think that's fine to me. The reason that I've become sort of a defender of Jordan Peterson is because of the outsized reaction to him. It has nothing to do with actually his work. It has to do with the fact that people, mostly people on the left sort of decry him as like, he's going to be responsible for the decline of civilization, which I think is fucking ridiculous. Can I curse on this? Go for it. Okay. That's, I think that's <laughs> fucking ridiculous. I think it's giving him a lot more power than he, than he has a lot more power than he needs to have. And I think when like recently in Durham, North Carolina, which is a city I know and love very well, I lived there for years. Um, Durham's local alt weekly wrote someone for the paper wrote this like screed against Jordan Peterson because he's going to be going to be speaking there in September. And she she wrote this like very long thing about all of his his crimes. The city council read it in the paper. Nobody on the city council. I'm assuming nobody. I only talked to one person on the city council um, who anyway, the city council read this in the paper. What they read, what like what they interpreted from this this screed about Jordan Peterson was that he's essentially a like a hate criminal. Like he spot like he spouts like hate speech. And that he's coming to Durham and Durham is a is a majority black town. It's super progressive. Like it has a long history of like of like of activist movements and social justice movements there. And so they responded in this way they like posted something on Facebook and said essentially like we can't condemn we can't like prevent him from coming here, but we just want to say like this is against our values. And so the woman well, who wrote he was this, set to, he was set to speak at like a publicly owned theater yeah. or something. It's a it's a venue. It's a really big venue in Durham. It's where they have like lots of music shows and lots of I don't know whatever comedians and stuff like that, and probably a lot of religious people too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's city owned, and the city can't like the city is not in the they're not allowed to decide who gets to come and who doesn't. And I don't think the Dur- like it's called DPAC. I don't the Durham Durham Performing Arts Center. I don't think they get to decide either. It's like they're politically neutral, and if you want to rent the theater, you can rent the theater. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there are no hate crime laws in the United States. I think if you were even like David Duke wanting to rent a theater, I think they would have to rent him the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I'm not a free speech absolutist. I don't think anybody really is because you can't yell, you know, we don't believe in lies. We don't believe in kitty porn. We don't believe in yelling fire in a crowded theater. But when it comes to, to cities, governments deciding what's acceptable and what's not – it's just, you know, whatever. It gets complicated. Anyway, 
So the Durham City Council read this screed in the paper. They issued this statement. Um, and then I talked to the woman who wrote it, Jillian Johnson, the mayor pro tem. And she said she'd never heard of Peterson before. So she went and watched a couple of his, of his videos. And she had this great quote. She said, uh, you know, I don't think what he's saying is hate speech. He's not Richard Spencer. He's Deepak. He's more like a white boy's Deepak Chopra with a side of rape culture, which I think she really kind of got it. Yeah, that was the a rape, great quote. I think the rape culture was a little bit. I think that was a little bit much. Um, I don't think he's advocating for rape culture. But uh, anyway, he did not like that. He did not like her, not like her quote at all. Anyway, and this, so it starts off this. It's like just this firestorm happens, and you know his 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 fans get really defensive, and then his, his you know, and it just like it's just this like outrage cycle that I don't think is actually making the world a better place or improving anything. All it's doing is making Jordan Peterson more fucking money. Which, if you want Jordan Peterson to shut up, the way to do it is to ignore him, not to like throw a fit every time he's coming to a new town. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll link to that piece you wrote about, uh, what happened in Durham. Um, yeah, so I, so there, so calling Peterson racist seems totally unfounded to me. Like, if he, if there was a, a charge of racism against him, it would have, like, you know, come out and everyone would know it by now. Right. So, so this is, right. like, grasping at straws, uh, but it, you know, it makes sense because the racism charge is, like, right. you know, kryptonite in, in America and there's no worse charge than racism. Um, okay, wait, uh, yeah, I want to interrupt you here for just a second sure. if you don't mind. Okay, so... The charges of him, there are there are a couple of charges that he's like said some some like racist things, and one comes from um, a conference that he was at in, I believe it was Denmark. I might be wrong about maybe Netherlands, and he said so. He was talking he was talking about this sort of like the this like this ongoing problem with immigration and this feeling there that like, that like uh, the Netherlands is like losing their culture, being overrun by immigrants. So this isn't a new thing. This has been going on for decades. So he had the quote from, so this, this quote, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to mess the quote up. Um, but he said essentially like immigrants should adhere to the dominant culture, not because that cult- the culture is superior or because the people are superior, but because the rules of the culture probably work. So he's essentially saying, like, play by your own, like, play, like, when in Rome. When in Rome. Yeah, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's essentially right. saying when in Rome. Right. So I, so I quoted him in my, in one of my pieces about Peterson. And then, um, and then this writer, Noah Berlatsky, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, boy. I was just yeah. talking about him today. He he blocks me on Twitter, so I really can't tell what he's you know, up to these he days. He has not blocked me yet, which which uh, which I'm actually offended that he hasn't blocked me. Well, what but I he, but he does tweet at me, but he but like he won't block me. He blocked everybody but me. Yeah, when this when I noticed this is inside baseball for people who are on Twitter, but when I noticed that he blocked me, I like knew who he was. Um, but I, I didn't think I, think I had ever interacted with him. So I like searched, there was never an interaction. So I don't know. I don't know. He saw something I tweeted that was so offensive. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I think Noah might be a little thin skinned. Um, he did. And, and this is public, so I don't feel bad saying it. He did a piece for NPR several years ago about how he was a virgin until he was like very, like very late in life. Nothing's wrong with that. I just want to point it out. Um, so Noah took me to task for like saying that that wasn't, that that wasn't racist. And I thought a lot about, and I did say, like, you know, after I quoted Peterson, I said, like, um, you know, one of the reasons, like, you have to acknowledge that one of the reasons that some culture, like, some Western cultures maybe are more functional than some other, like, developing nations. Oh, that's it. 
Peterson called developing nations pits of catastrophe. Okay, right. Which isn't that far from Trump saying shitholes, but it is it is a little far. But it's sort of in that same in that same vein. And so Noah says claims this is really racist. And Peterson, you know, anyway. So you know, and I said like, well, you know, you have to acknowledge that one of the reasons that these that these some of these countries are pits of catastrophe is direct is because of colonialism, Western intervention, capitalism, all of these things that, that like the West is directly responsible for. With that out of the way, I was thinking a lot about after this, I was thinking sort of about this idea that I think that parts of the left, the Noah Berlatskis of the world, are embracing a moral relativism because the reality is some cultures are more functional and more humane than others. And I think that if we deny that, we're in a really weird spot because like, like Boko Haram, I don't know anybody who wants to live under a Boko Haram regime. I just don't. You know, they kidnap children, they rape them, like girls aren't allowed to go to school. You know, like, I think that it's okay to acknowledge that some cultures, not some people, but like some societies are more humane than others. And if we like, if we can't acknowledge that, I'm like, how, what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, the whole basis of feminism in this is this idea that like, some things, some systems are better than others. Liberalism is based on that idea. And so it's confusing to me that there are some loud voices on the left saying like, you can't, you, you can't even be critical of non-Western cultures because that's racist. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's definitely a complicated subject. Um, and pits of disaster is not the kindest way to describe, you know, developing, right. I guess you call it the developing world would be like the most I think you said dying. catastrophe technically, but okay. Yeah. So yeah, but I, yeah, I, I, I mean, no one who like, no like average person cares about this issue. This is like a, an elite debate. Um, but yeah, I do agree. It is a mistake to say for the left to posit the claim that like every civilization, society, culture, whatever is like, totally equal like all all humans are equal in their right. rights right and how they should be treated but right. like you know the aztecs murdered <laughs> took out people's hearts or aztecs right. or minds i don't know so like that's not a great <laughs> society right. we would want to emulate and if there was like if, if somehow we came upon a lost society today that was practicing child sacrifice like there'd probably be a strong movement to like invade well it depends and, like, on the children rest- well, that's true. And, but this, I mean, you mentioned, uh, shithole countries or possibly yeah. shithouse countries. That was, that was one of the yeah. alternates. Like it's, it's only like a few steps away, um, from pits of catastrophe to shithouse countries. And then, so Trump obviously doesn't give a shit about anything that happens to, uh, people in Africa and right. doesn't, doesn't want any of those people coming to the United States. And right. then like a step and a half later, you have, um, Richard Spencer white nationalism. So right. It's, right. It's, a, right. it's a spectrum. Um, right. Wh- I, I had a question that is suddenly slipping my mind. Well, what do you think of the, okay. So I think we can dispense with the racist charge. Jordan Peterson, yes. you are not a racist. You've been granted, you've been cleared by the <laughs> You're court. You're absolved. Yeah. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson, misogynist. What do you okay. Think about that so charge? that one, I think a misogynist, I think is an, is the, an incorrect term. I think, I think that, He's a traditionalist, and I think that maybe sexist. Um, I don't think misogynist, because to me, that implies a level of disdain, and I don't think he has that. So Peterson, I think it's important to know that Peterson 
is with his childhood sweetheart. He met his wife when he was like seven or eight years old. Like they've been together for a, li- a lifetime. And his, his like view of the world is obviously in- influenced by that. And I think that he has this. So it's interesting. He does have this traditionalist view of, of women and what women want, like child, like women want babies. I mean, it is true that, that the majority of women, myself being a, a strong exception to that rule, I think that humans should actually go extinct. I'm a member of the voluntary human extinction movement, and I'm not really kidding about that. Um, most women do, do you want have, babies. Do you have meetings? Like, <laughs> I just write about it on the internet, and then okay. people get mad at me and say that I should have been aborted, which I uh, argue is also true. Um, so yeah, there's this philosopher who, um, argues that like, you know, every birth is a mistake and you should, yeah. and any person shouldn't have been born would have been better off not being born. I uh, mean, I agree with that. Humans are a cancer. Um, so let, let me just read. I just, I, uh, noted down a tweet that was getting, past, I know which I, I knew that you were going to read this tweet. I knew this was coming. Okay. So I'm just going to read this because yeah. it was getting retweeted recently. Uh, yes. so he wrote this on September 28th, 2017. Uh, Jordan Peterson, is it possible that young women are so outraged because they are craving infant contact in a society that makes that very difficult? Okay, uh, I so, just, so just, I just want to know, no one seemed to care about this, but I thought it was interesting. Um, the New York Times first Weinstein story was posted October 5th. So one, one, this is one week before the Me Too movement was sparked. Okay, okay. So... I want to know what what was like the tweets before and after that, because I also saw this get passed around this week. And I think that like tweets are just you can never take a tweet at face value like you need to know the context. And so there's no I haven't seen the context. So on its face, if I'm assuming that there's no that this wasn't a tweet like in the middle of some other, like it, it, it at least wasn't a thread because I went to the original okay. tweet so I could retweet it. So it, it wasn't a thread, but maybe he's okay. not technologically knowledgeable enough to. I mean, I would not be surprised about that. Um, being a millionaire doesn't make you good at Twitter as we have <laughs> seen. Um, so, okay. Will you read it again? <laughs> sure. Uh, is it possible that young women are so outraged because they are craving infant contact in a society that makes that very difficult? I mean, it just, it sounds so ridiculous, but I, I heard Peterson like, and and I say this as someone who like has no maternal instinct. So for me, it's like, you think like, like women exist without the desire to like, we exist. I think he's bad with outliers. Um, Because he thinks in archetypes. Right. He he does. He thinks in archetypes like for him, like there is female and female is chaos and whatever. So that said, Peterson, I heard Peterson uh, on, I watched him do a video with Claire Lehman from Quillette Mm -hmm. and they had sort of an interesting and enlightening conversation because in part of it, he was talking about this sort of the female, innate female desire to, actually, I think they were talking about the pay gap and then this sort of, this segues into like the innate female desire to child rear or whatever. And so the position that he comes, that he comes to while spouting these sort of traditionalist ideas about what women want and what men want is that if you, if you set up society so that childbirth is rewarded financially, so women aren't penalized for having children because that's where like a good part of the pay gap comes from being a parent, Mm -hmm. mothering in particular, then women will be able to do this thing. will be able to have children 
while not being penalized for it, which is actually a great liberal value. You know what I mean? So it's so to me, like, I think that's a crazy thing to say, but I think he sort of gets to the right place, which is value motherhood, value it financially, like paid maternity leave, you know, um, make it make accommodations so that women aren't penalized by the fact that like we have to like we're the ones who who like gestate the child. So to me, like, I think it's a dumb thing to say, but I think he in the end, he gets to the right place, which is better maternity leave. Okay. So it doesn't bother me that much. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I said this. I said this on the previous uh, episode, um, which was actually with uh, Phoebe Malsbovi, um, uh, where we ended up talking about Pierre Peterson. Um, the male-female yin-yang chaos order dichotomy um, makes no sense to me. So I don't mm-hmm. know anything about Jungian uh, archetypes, yeah. right. but uh, you know, it seems like he sees the world of order and the world of chaos. Right. And then he identifies men with order and women with chaos. So that's yeah, it's just a big fucking fucking metaphor. insane. It's a bad one. It's I agree with you. It's really stupid. But well, I think, it would but make a right, little more sense to call to put men in chaos and women in order. That at least makes right. some kind of sense. Right. But so I don't know what he's trying to get at with this. Uh, sound off in the comments if you understand it. But I think the way yeah. it's being understood uh, by the lay audience is men are orderly, women are chaotic. Men need to right. impose order on women. Like, right. I mean, you know, I live are, I, like men are chaotic. Right. I like I'm a lesbian. Like, what does he think that my life looks like? <laughs> Just like chaos and drama all the time. Like, no, dude, we're boring. Come on. Well, at least like when we get into our mid 30s, the 20s were pretty dramatic, actually. No, I agree with you. I think that like I'm not into this metaphor. Like Jungian analysis, I think it's bullshit. You know, I feel the same way about Freud, like psychology in general. I have sort of a hard time with with many with many aspects of of, of that field. I think it's wrong. But I also just like, I just, I don't think that the, that the vitriol is, that's directed towards him. I think it's feeding off itself, you know, and sort of it's, and you can get, you, you know, you get sort of points if you, if you write a think piece taking down Jordan Peterson or make like a particularly cutting tweet about his Kermit the Frog voice, you know, and so we're sort of like people, those of us in the media are sort of rewarded by, by hating Jordan Peterson. As am I by not hating him because I get lots of clicks because of it from his fans. You're here right now me. because you don't hate your Exactly. And what a reward this is. Um, but I, uh, yeah, and I, I've done a lot of Jordan Peterson um, joke tweets and they, they get retweets. Um, let me run yeah. maybe one more Jordan Peterson theory by you. And I'm not sure if I even still believe this, but this is kind of what I thought when I first started learning about him. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie Being There? No. Okay. So it's a weird movie from the 70s with uh, Peter Sellers uh, in, the, in the title role. And he plays a um, gardener named Chance who works in a, like, enclosed estate. I can't remember if he's in New York or Philadelphia. And he's working for – he's, like, worked in the same place his entire life. And he's working for this really old rich guy who's, like, a hermit. So he never – so, like, basically he's never left this uh, giant estate. And then the old rich guy dies. And, uh, you know, the house – the house is sold, so Chance needs to make his way in the world – and he goes out, and it's the seventies, and so he's he's never like seen you know the streets before, and you know there's it's a classic like nineteen seventies like city street scene of all sorts of characters walking around and sirens going off and stuff, and so he enters the world, but he hooks up with like a tel- television producer, and what happens is that he he's very simple minded because he's never been educated or anything, uh, and he says these kind of like riddle like or gnomic utterances, and. The fact that he is wearing, like, servant's clothing from the 1920s makes everyone think that he's really rich. 
Mm-hmm. So they, and they misunderstand when he introduces himself. He says, I'm Chance the Gardener. And they think he said, I'm Chauncey Gardener. Um, so they think he's like this rich man coming to like share his wisdom. And then I can't remember exactly what happens towards the end, but it's like either he runs for president or he becomes president or something. And then he's portrayed kind of like a, as a Christ figure in the, in the very end of the movie. So he's like a holy fool. But he, yeah, he says these, yeah. these very simple statements. Um, I can't, none of them are coming to mind. Um, but one of them might be something like, clean your room. Bucko. Or, <laughs> right. So that's how I initially kind of thought of Jordan Peterson. Of like, he's like this guy who says these kind of impenetrable gnomic things and kind of like by accident ended up like falling into, falling into this online like media popularity. And everyone just like sees whatever they want from him. And since he's like, a good looking, you know, 55 year old white man with gray hair and a great sense of fashion as you know, the New York times noted, um, they are like, wow, this guy must really have something going on and he, he must really know what he's talking about. And yeah. And then it's kind of, he's kind of like been bobbing along and it's like, Jordan, what do you think about immigration in the Netherlands? And he just says like, a, it's not like he has original political ideas. He just sta- yeah. says whatever the standard conservative line is like, I mean, that's, that's, that is true and isn't true. Like, he's in favor. He's Canadian. I mean, he's in, he's, he's conservative by Canadian standards, but he's still right. in favor of, you know, like universal health care and, and maternal leave, like, policies that in the United States are actually left. Right. Yeah, but he doesn't have, he doesn't have any, I mean, obviously he's thought a lot about, uh, psychology, uh, Jungian archetypes, the Bible, human myth. I don't think he has any, uh, political intelligence or has thought more about politics than, the average person who like no, reads I think the newspaper. Right. Um, right. So yeah, so he's like, uh, you know, the the I, I said that that article you sent me from Wesley Yang. Uh, I it seemed like a hagiography. He's being treated like a saint, um, you know. And when when you attack him online, there's people who are like, "How dare you say that?" Like, right. have, like right. haven't you read his books? Like, you really need to watch this to understand him. Like, he has the secret knowledge, and yeah. <laughs> so that, that's my that's my initial Jordan Peterson theory. <laughs> what do you make yeah. of it? I mean, I don't think you're wrong about that because I haven't read his books. I sort of don't want to comment on how great or terrible they are. I really like the Wesley Yang piece. Wesley Yang spent a lot of time with them and is one of the few few writers in the, you know the mainstream, not Jordan Peterson fan Tumblr press, who's written a like fairly glowing review of his work. And I think that he has had like like an influence on Wesley Yang. It sounds it seems like. He's taken a lot from his, from what he has to say, and I think Wesley Yang is smart. Um, yeah, in the in the piece, he notes that he was having uh, a right. some kind of life crisis, and then right. Peterson's right. work uh, helped him. Right, and I get emails from people literally every day telling me that, and then and like I'll also get emails from people telling me, "All right, well, I, you're like not a Jordan Jordan Peterson fan, but you're also like you don't hate him. I'm wondering if you want to be my pen pal, and we can like write back and forth. We can like watch his videos and write back and forth. And the answer to that is I'm deleting this email and never responding to it. Okay, so um, so, so he appeals to lonely people, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of lonely people in the world. I have a lot of sympathy for lonely people. Um, I mean, I think you're right. This this idea that he's a saint, and he also. But I think that part of that is the response that he's getting because it's so outsized, this idea. He's transphobic. He's racist. He's misogynist. He's going to be respond Like he brings people to the alt-right. Like I just don't see that that's, I mean, the alt-right doesn't actually like him. Richard Spencer has disavowed Richard, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, and so I think you're right. Like he is treated as a saint, but part of that is because he's also reviled. 
like saints sometimes are. Maybe he's a saint. I mean, I also think that this is a really good opportunity. Hopefully, he will I think not be martyred. Uh, hopefully as, not. As I mean, my God. I mean, I this sort of gives me an idea. I think that I could probably make up some bullshit and put it on YouTube and become a cult figure too. <laughs> I I don't have a three piece suit, but I could get one. Uh, well, I think there's lots of people out there who have you know want to uh, create their own cult of personality. Yes, and it's uh, hard to do. Um, one person who did it successfully is Donald Trump, <laughs> and he, it seems like another did. yeah another person who did it successfully. Uh, is Jordan Peterson. I, it's, I wouldn't go as far as, as, as the Trump, you know, as the, the allegiance that people seem to have to Peterson is, I would not put quite so far as like the people who will just agree with whatever Trump says. Okay. Who, so who would you rather be president, Donald Trump or Jordan Peterson? Oh, definitely Jordan Peterson. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> I mean, you Trump know, is a I mean, moron. There's, he's a moron. There's no lesbians in this, in this, uh, like in these cult figures. I think that there's a real opening for me here. <laughs> Yeah, there's a market niche. Um, did you yeah. did you watch uh, Wild Wild Country? I did. I well, I watched it and I fell I fell asleep during every single episode. Oh. Um, but I did. Maybe you don't have I what did, it takes to be a cult leader. Then <laughs> my my attention span is certainly not long enough. Yeah, I mean, you got to deliver long orations. That seems to be a key okay. part of it. Trump does the, the rallies. Peterson does that as well. And right, Bob right. Tree Rush Niche had some you know long sessions yeah. as well. You lull people into complacency. <laughs> I could do that. Um, okay, should we move on to our other, even yes. possibly even more controversial topic? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's um, uh, detransitioning. So how would you, so I guess we're talking about this because you wrote a piece about this, um, uh, was it last year? Yeah, it was a year ago. And um, Jesse Single wrote a cover story for The Atlantic about this as well. Um, I should say at the outset that Jesse Sigal is a friend of mine. We met when we were teenagers and have stayed in touch since, and he's appeared a couple times on, on the site. Um, so well, you're complicit. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'll take that, take that for what it's worth. Um, yeah. So there were, there was like a big backlash to both, both of these pieces, but why don't you define right. detransitioning for people who don't know what it means? Okay. Detransitioning is when someone transition from transitions from their natal sex, or I suppose the, the more popular parlance is sex assigned at birth transitions to a different gender and then changes their mind and retransitions. Sometimes it's called retransition. The people that, uh, who like the people that I interviewed for my piece and the people Jesse had interviewed for his piece refer to it as detransition. Um, so that I think is the term that should be used. Okay. Yeah. So basically it's a trans person who has changed their mind. Right. Or that's probably simplifying it, and I would get yelled at for saying that by some people, but that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, and the, the language and terminology is very, like, uh, heavily freighted in this uh, area, and often oh. you can get um, called out for using the wrong the wrong term. So, um, you know, Indeed. This is a live video here, folks, so it could be a little, <laughs> be a little forgiving. Um, okay, so, yeah, so Jesse wrote this big piece about uh, detransitioning on the cover, and when it came out, there was an immediate outcry among people I follow, follow on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like how dare the Atlantic publish Jesse single on the cover about detransitioning. So a lot of people retweeted the, you know, the JPEG of the, of the cover image Mm -hmm. and added their jokes. And I saw people comparing it to the new Republic running, um, uh, the bell curve in the nineties and, uh, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And, the, and yeah, and a lot of people like uh, hating on on Jesse 
uh, in all sorts of ways. And... A lot of famous people. A lot of like, like Lena Dunham called him a creep. Like she's never <laughs> met him. I mean, this whole thing, like, got it, like, it, yeah. So it really brought me back to when it was like happening to Jesse. Jesse's piece was published almost a year after my piece. And the response to Jesse's piece was much larger than the response to my piece because I write for a local biweekly. Mm-hmm. Jesse writes for The Atlantic. Um, but had sort of that same level of like fever pitch. Um, it was bad. Like people were burning, they were burning stacks of the paper, you know, and like sending me videos of it, which was actually great for our circulation numbers. That <laughs> issue was incredibly popular. When you like take 50 copies and burn them all, it looks <laughs> great for me. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so, so anyone who wants to burn, uh, <laughs> burn magazines, uh, something to consider. Um, yeah. Okay, why why is this become like the third rail of of like the discourse? Okay, um, a couple reasons. For one, a lot of so because this is this is like happening on social media, um, or the response is happening on social media. As I think it's important to note that, as with any sort of subculture, the loudest group does not represent, you know does not represent the whole. So there's a lot, like, the outcry was incredibly loud, but there's a lot of, you know, trans people who don't have a problem with Jesse or his work, but they're just, like, not screaming about it on Twitter for the most part. Um, so, but there's a couple reasons. So, broadly speaking, some trans people find any discussion of detransition to be a threat to their identity, so because it's like saying, um, you know, it's something that like people are faking it or they're growing out of it. And therefore, you know, trans people don't deserve human rights. That's not what Jesse said. That's not what I said. And both of us, you know, interviewed happily detransitioned people and made a point to like emphasize the fact that transition, that medical and social transition can be like is for people who have severe gender dysphoria, it can be a really effective treatment. And both of us believe that people who are transgender should have access to healthcare and, you know, and hormones and surgery and whatever they want to make themselves happy. Um, that said, doesn't matter how many times you like, you know, sort of cloak your piece in this, like in these terms about like, yes, transition is ultimately good, but there are for a lot of people, but there are a minority of people for whom this isn't, and if transitioning isn't effective for treating dysphoria and here are some of those people and this is how they've dealt with their dysphoria. This is how they dealt with the transition process and the retransmission process. I think it's just an interesting story, but people really fucking hate it. So there's also like, you know, the interesting thing is that this is some place where this is one of the few points at which radical feminists and the conservative and conservative Christians meet. So there are basically two camps that are that are writing about or even talking about detransition, aside from like people like reporters like Jesse and I. There's radical feminists and then there's conservative Christians or like like the Federalist um, who come at it from very different reasons. Radical feminists question the idea that gender exists in the first place. And some of them argue that, that, that transitioning is essentially like a men's, a men's rights activist movement. Um, and that is being used to oppress females. Conservative Christians 
and whatever, like Federalist type people come at it from the point where they're like, Jesus doesn't approve or whatever. Like, like it's a moral issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but they sort of, they come together and like that also like pornography, they come together are like being anti-porn, um, uh, anti-sex work, stuff like that. So there's these like weird points where you get this, where the, like, the sort of of the the Venn diagram is like overlaps there. It's very heated. Um, so those two groups, radical feminists and conservatives have at times used detransitioners to push this idea that transition is a fad or a mistake or like somehow harmful for people. So that's where trans activists get real pissed is because they say that, you know, the Federalist or Breitbart or whatever is going to use my story or Jesse's story or these detransitioners' own stories to push this, to push an anti-trans narrative. And Jesse and I both talked about that in our pieces. Like, that's a thing that happens. It's, there's small voices that are doing this. They don't have a ton of pull in, like, American culture at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they exist. So that's part of it. Um, and then there's also, both Jesse and I got the criticism that everybody gets when they're writing about controversial subjects if they don't fit the demographic essentially that as cis people we are not qualified and should not be allowed even to write about issues that like we don't they say they argue essentially that like we don't we couldn't possibly understand this because we're not trans and yeah and so like basically like we're speaking out of turn by reporting on these issues i think that's a fucking ridiculous argument to make you can make that about any sort of reporting um Yeah, but those are sort of the arguments that get trotted out. And then in Jesse's case, like, the attacks became very personal. There were lots of, like, false rumors that were spread by famous people in the media um, that are not based in reality. And Jesse handled it, I think, very well. I was, like, getting probably more heated than he was. He knew that this was coming also. He's a pretty chill guy. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, okay, so getting back to when the piece broke... Um, immediate uproar just based on the fact of its existence. Um, you know, people treating it like an admiring profile of Richard Spencer or something. And, right. and then, or so Jordan I, Jordan Peterson. Right. So I, I clicked open the article and I saw, oh, this is very, very long. Um, 13,000 words. <laughs> right. So, There's yeah. also one of the amazing rumors that got spread during this time. I have no idea where this came from was that he got paid $24,000 for this article. Did you see that? I saw him joking about getting yeah. like re- like uh, like I just got paid nine million dollars or something like yeah. that. I have no idea yeah. what the Atlantic's he, word read he, is. They but. they do well. It's not two dollars a word. <laughs> he did not get twenty four thousand dollars for one article. But for some reason, like people kept like, how could they twenty four thousand dollars for one fucking article? Well, unfortunately, they didn't. That's not <laughs> true. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, maybe. Um, you know, a dollar award is maybe what like Hemingway made, you know, when right. he was filing dispatches right. from Cuba right. or something, but it doesn't really happen anymore. Um, yeah, so I didn't read it for a while, but I kept on seeing the responses, um, on Twitter, uh, while well, it was like open in my tabs. So what I noticed very quickly was like, no one is screen capping this. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just f- fulminating about it. But where, what's the, where's the objectionable paragraph? Like people love to screen cap, Great <laughs> screen cap on, online and put, put it on Twitter. Um, and then when I finally read it, which took a long time since it's so long, um, I was like, yeah, I don't, what's, what's the counter argument here exactly that picks out some, like picks out a piece. So yeah, I, I thought it was noteworthy that no people were like, can you believe he wrote this and highlighting it? What, because there wasn't anything in there that, 
it was like that. Um, Jezebel posted a couple things uh, attacking the piece. Uh, the first one I found pretty incoherent. Uh, the second one was about the fact Wait, the that the first one was the first one just like uh, what, what was it entitled? I had like it was a really intellectual title. Jesse Single, what the fuck is wrong with you? Was something, that it? Yeah, it was something along yeah. those lines. And I think the yeah. I think the image was the um, the magazine going into a trash can or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then the second one uh, had to do with a like private uh, message board or listserv or something that Jesse is on with like four thousand other uh, rich and famous American journalists and. Uh, it was like his conversations about the article with other people. So he was the only per- So it was like they outed, like outed him as being in this group. Everyone else's name was fuzzed out, but it would be like, you know, a journalist for a major news network said this or whatever. And they treated this like it was um, the Pentagon Papers or something. But yeah, again, yeah, again, in this document, yeah. there was nothing. Jesse was just like explaining what he thought. He was very like even handed. And um, yeah. 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 So it, it really does seem like uh, the it's mostly like people are firing empty shots at this because they're angry that it exists, but they can't actually, but they're still going to stick. Is the thing though. Like you just like, you just repeat this shit enough. And this, like there is this idea that Jesse is reporting on these issues because he is obsessed with trans women. Nicole clip tweeted that she doesn't know him. He's obsessed with the fucking Celtics. He's not obsessed with trans women. Like this is his beat reporting on social science is his beat. And this is a fascinating subject, regardless of whether you're trans or not. And so it's funny when I wrote my piece. So I'm a lesbian and my, in case anybody is blind in the audience. So, <laughs> well, this um, is a podcast. As well, okay. So. Okay. Okay. Well, just imagine like Rosie O'Donnell, but like 10 years younger, 20 years younger. Um, so, uh, so I, so the, the, the claim hurled at me was that I'm a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. I'm not that, but I'm a lesbian. So that really fits neatly into that, into that narrative. The claim hurled at Jesse is that he is secretly like he wants to have sex with trans women. To me, it just like that seems like that. It's so funny because it's such this sort of biological essentialist. He's a man. Therefore, he has like a secret boner for trans women. And I'm a lesbian. And therefore, it like this all comes from my like political agenda. And I'm threatened by trans women as a lesbian. None of which is true. I'm the one who's obsessed with trans women. And Jesse is the turf. (laughs) Um... Yeah, and yeah, I mean, people. I don't know. It, 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 it the the hatred expressed against him is is kind of baffling to me. Um, I, I think that I mean one one criticism of the entire enterprise that I thought did have some merit is like, um, you know, uh, people who are trans uh, lead difficult lives and have a lot of problems that. Uh, society could help alleviate. Um, some do, some don't. Right. So yeah, we're we're speaking in abstractions here. Um, right. So you know, the suicide attempt rate is high for trans youth, and um, the uh, trans women are much more likely to be murdered. I actually went to high school with a, a trans woman who was murdered about ten years oh, ago. Wow. Um, and there's also, however, so like, though, why I think why possible. tell this? Why tell right. this story as opposed to all the other possible those, stories? Those stories are also being told. Like, there, like there's this, every time someone writes about this, this people trot out this argument like, 
there are detransition stories that we're fine with. Name them. Like there are not, there have been probably like four, like less than a dozen of these pieces. I can think of like, um, Rachel Monroe, who's a, that great, uh, freelance writer who had, did some, has done some amazing pieces in the New Yorker. She did something for a magazine. I can't remember. There's her, my piece, Jesse's piece, and maybe like three or four others about detransition. Other than that, like most of the stories you read are going to be not that like this. It's not like, you know, it's not like there are more detransition stories than happy trans stories or stories about tragedy and murder. That's not true. Um, and also like, I'm not sure about Jesse's piece if he had this, but we, I like, I talked about those things in my piece. I talked about the trans death rate and suicide rate and murder rate and all that stuff. So I, you know, I just also like our jobs are to write interesting things. And it's interesting when somebody transitions and then transitions back. It's fucking fascinating. And I mean, I think that it's not so dangerous that we shouldn't be able to talk about it, especially because the people who have gone through of it, through it ha- are talking about it. And there's a growing community of these people. And there pro- will probably be more in the future. Yeah, it, se- it seems that way now that it's uh, the acceptance of trans people has grown very quickly over the past couple of years. It seems likely that... Um, um, more people will go through the process, and then if there's right. more people going through it, there right. stands to reckon Absolutely. there'll be more people. Absolutely, and, the, and it. it's also true that the the gates, the gatekeepers, have been uh, sort of pushed out. So there's a, the, the the barrier to get um, hormone replacement therapy or surgery is much lower than it was, you know, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Which is a good thing for some people, and for some people, it ends up being a very bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are all the questions I have on detransitioning. Is there anything else you'd want to say about the subject? Um, detransitioning is not a crime. No, there <laughs> is writing about it. Okay. <laughs> That's it. I think detransitioners are, are like incredibly brave people and they, you know, a lot of the ones that I spoke to have lost their community. They like, it was easier for them to be, and I heard this over and over again. It was easier to be trans than it was to be detrans. Like, after you detransition, you lose, you, you know, you lose your trans community and you might be a woman who now has to, who appears male and you don't want that. And like, I'm, I get misgendered all the time. Every time I'm in an airport, oddly, like someone will call me he, and I don't really mind it, but I also don't love it. Um, and I, I don't know. It's just like, they're in a really difficult position. I, then for my piece, I interviewed two men who had transitioned and then transitioned to women and then transitioned back. And both of them had bottom surgery. And now they're straight men trying to date and make partners and they don't have penises. Mm. Um, and like, that's a, that's a hard life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to be trans, but it's also hard to be detrans. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Katie, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, yeah. and talking about these, uh, uh, controversial subjects, Jordan Peterson detransitioning. Um, people in the comments, uh, let us know what you think. Um, and where can people find more of your work? Um, the best place to find me is thestranger.com or I'm on Twitter at Kitty Perzog. Kitty Perzog. Okay. And the link to the, the link to your Twitter page will be below. Um, but don't tweet me. I don't want to see your tweets. Don't tweet me, please. <laughs> Okay. Just uh, burn my Twitter down instead. That would actually be <laughs> so. So feel free to follow, but don't at her because yeah, she doesn't want to see me. it. Um, okay. Uh, thank you again, Katie. Thank you, uh, all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. 
Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.